we start with the city of Surrey and their transition to a new local police force. Now, have a listen to this. This is Norm Lipinski here now, the new chief of the Surrey Police Service, talking yesterday to Jazz Johal. Now, you may have heard that as this new Surrey Police Force is ramping up here, they're hiring a lot of cops from other cities, including uh, 20-odd officers from Vancouver. They've been hired by this new Surrey Police Force. Is that poaching? Is he stealing police from other cities? Here's what he said. I think, uh, first of all, that uh, the word poaching is uh, is a little bit too strong. Recruiting has been taking part uh, among the lower mainland agencies ever since I've been in B.C., and that's 10 years ago. And uh, we all we all uh, look to keeping the best, and other agencies want to take our best. Well, that's it. Okay, so it's not poaching, it's just recruiting. All right, so let's talk to Bill Thielman now, president of West Star Communications. He's part of the campaign to keep the RCMP in Surrey. Hey, Bill. Hey, Mike. Thanks for coming on. What do you think's going on? Do you call it poaching? What do you call it? Well, let, let me just read what the actual, uh, the Surrey Police Union, which is for the SPS, said. Of the first 135 SPS officers, 21 came from the Vancouver Police Department, right. 40, 47 from other municipal forces in B.C., 25 from the Surrey RCMP, and the rest from other RCMP detachments and police forces in Canada. So, uh, <laughs> so most of them came from elsewhere. And, you know, Mike, this has come up repeatedly. Mayors and police chiefs in other municipalities have raised concerns. The Union of BC Municipalities, which represents all the cities and towns in British Columbia, raised these concerns back in June. And as a result, the, the uh, Director of Police Services for BC, Wayne Rideout, capped the number of, uh, of officers that could be recruited to uh, well under uh, 175. So clearly, wow. <laughs> I mean, I, obviously Norm Lipinski's job, and I don't blame him, is to defend recruiting. But, you, you know, the Justice Institute only turns out a few dozen graduates a year. So you have to poach officers from elsewhere to fill, you know, they're supposed to eventually well, get 800 officers in Surrey. And the, if you don't take them from other police forces, where could they possibly come from? Yeah, now they've got this cap on the number of new recruits that they can mm-hmm. hire off the bat here. They've got to ramp up to 800 police officers. So that is a tall order. But you know, one of the things that you heard Norm Lipinski say there, the new the new Surrey police chief saying, like, look, this is this is just the way it works all the time. I mean, you know, police officers move around, you know. And if let's say you're a Vancouver police officer, a lot of Vancouver cops w- actually live in Surrey. So, you know, so why wouldn't they? So why wouldn't they want to work for the Surrey Police Department? Well, Mike, you're right that police officers move around, but not 800 at a time. Like this is a giant, uh, bizarro musical ride of officers moving around a whole place. And in, in the middle of COVID-19 and a gang and drug war, to have dozens and dozens and hundreds of officers leaving one jurisdiction to go to another, as soon as, like, look at VPD, they've lost 25 officers, they have to replace those 25 officers. If Victoria has lost 25 officers, they have to replace them. So where are they going to get them? The You know, like the, there's just a finite limit. It's just like okay. anything else. Uh, you know, if you lose your star baseball player, where do you get another one? There's only so many uh, people at that caliber available, and particularly okay. with experienced officers. Okay, well, let's have a listen to another clip here of Norm Lipinski, the new chief of the Surrey Police Service. Now, here he is saying, like, look, these candidates are actually coming to us. They want to work for us. Have a listen. Everybody has a right to uh, leave their employment and join or attempt to join another organization. 
And uh, they come to us, and uh, we have lots of applications, and we're looking for certain people and certain skill sets, and we hire them. Yeah, okay. So he says they're getting people coming to them. It's not like they're going out and stealing police officers from other forces. They're probably getting people knocking on their doors. Hey, we want to come work for you. Yeah, but it doesn't actually matter whether they knock on the doors or, or the people knock on their door. The problem is, I mean, this is our police service. They are protecting our lives, our property, our children, everything else. And that's why the provincial government rightly stepped in and said, wait a minute, you can't disrupt the entire policing services of all these municipalities all over Metro Vancouver and beyond Metro Vancouver by, by just uh, taking people willy-nilly and paying oh, them, so know, what's paying the them pro- more, paying them bonuses, whatever it is. So you what's the problem? Sure you're, you're, well, you have to make sure your municipal, all municipalities have the policing service they need to protect people. Well, he, he said that. I mean, one of the other things that Lipinski said yesterday on, on the station was that that's precisely what they're doing, like making sure that public safety is paramount is like job one. And if the province puts a lid on the number of new officers they can hire off the bat, that doesn't, doesn't that fix the problem right there? Well, uh, putting the cap on it is definitely what what should have happened and has happened now. But, I mean, there's no question you cannot have this giant transition of of dozens or hundreds, I should say, of officers going uh, from every other detachment into Syria and and people moving all around and expect that policing service can be maintained. It's just not possible. Here's the other thing I'm wondering about. This is supposed to be a a two-year process, two years to transition from the RCMP to a new local municipal police force in Surrey. I don't know if that's possible right now, given these circumstances. Now, here's what Norm Lipinski had to say about that. Like, how long is this going to take? Here's what he said. Sure. I'd like to get this done in two years, uh, but it might be longer than that. But we can't have this go on for a long, long period of time because... Uh, to be fair to the members of the SPS, to be fair to the RCMP members that will be here until the end, and to be fair to the citizens of Surrey. So it's, uh, it's finding that sweet spot of uh, ramping up and then ramping down. Okay, Norm Lipinski there, chief of the Surrey Police Service, or the SPS as he called it there. Like, Do you have any concerns that this could take longer, Bill? Well, I mean, I have a concern that it's happening at all. It's because, you know, working with the Surrey Police Vote Campaign, we're trying to get a referendum to stop this, and we believe that the vast majority of Surrey residents now see how expensive and disruptive and problematic it is, and their taxes are going up again and again. And so I think, uh, you know, so that's the first thing. So, uh, I mean, the whole thing could come to a stop if there's either a referendum uh, sometime soon or in the October next year, October elections in well, Surrey. We know, where, we know so, that's not going to happen, though. I mean, this, no, this, train, this train is going down the track. No, no, no we don't, Mike. There's, there are candidates running in the Surrey election, if nothing else, in October of mm. next year who are, who are bound and determined to stop this because it's so expensive. But <clears throat> in terms of um, uh, Chief Lipinski's comments, uh, if you can only get 200 a year, that'll take four years. Four years to get up to the 800 yeah. uh, that the RCMP already have there right now. Okay, listen to this. Now, this is where I think it gets really interesting, and that is the cost. Now, there's already been criticism of the cost of doing this. It's going to be expensive. Could it get even more expensive, especially if it takes longer than anticipated to actually pull this off? Now, have a listen to this. Now, it's $64 million is the budget for the transition. Okay, so $64 million for the two-year transition. What if it takes four, three years, four years or longer? Here's what Lipinski had to say about that. That's what it costs for transition, $64 million. I've had a look at what equipment we need. I had a look at what IT we need. And I had a look at what the long game is pertaining to uh, staffing 
And so uh, it's, it's uh, pointed in the right direction. Never say never, of course, because uh, nobody's done this before, and there may be surprises in the future. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Well, that's what he said there. Never say, uh, Mike, never, it, say it, never. Never say never, indeed. Uh-oh. Well, there's a good reason why, because it started at $19 million, and then it went yeah. to 30 or $40 million. Now it's 64 and counting, and that is and counting. There is no way that that is complete. I mean, just think about all of the different... Uh, costs going on. That's $64 million committed with, uh, you know, with just as of this week having 29 officers' boots on the ground. I mean, they're, they're way off schedule, they're way over budget, and the costs just keep rising. And there's only, you know, in Surrey, there's only one taxpayer who has to pay for this. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the ramp-up of the new Surrey police force. Looks like it's going to cost more money. Hang on to your wallets here in Surrey. I think the budget on this thing could be going up. My guest is Bill Thielman. He's part of the campaign to stop this. He wants to keep the RCMP in Surrey. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 in your cell. Mark and Delta. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mike. I just... uh Used to live, I used to live in Surrey, and I bailed out when I saw all this happening. And I just want to know, someone needs to explain how this can be reversed. What would be the process? All these executives hired and police officers taken away from other departments. I, I, please explain. Okay, uh, well, Bill, how do you stop it? Sure. Well, right now there's uh, almost 800 RCMP officers patrolling in Surrey, and so if you, uh, even if you reduce that number slightly with SPS, uh, you put you stop it, and uh, there's a huge demand for police officers all over the all over the country. Um, obviously, that's why we have a cap on the recruitment right now. But you know, Mike, uh, what people don't talk about, and Chief Lipinski didn't talk about, is we get in Surrey and every other RCMP detachment in the country gets 10% of its operating costs covered by the yeah. federal government that you lose the minute you switch over. That you know, that's roughly eighteen million dollars a year in Surrey. So you can think about the sixty-four million dollar cost so far. Uh, you'd recoup that in just a few years with the federal uh, contribution. So it doesn't make financial sense to make this change. And so even if uh, some of that money is uh, is sadly uh, money that's not recoverable, um, and a lot of it's gone to s- salaries for Chief Lipinski and his senior uh, officers, but um, it, it's still cheaper for Surrey residents to have the RCMP than to have this municipal police force. Okay, back to the phone lines. Anne calling from Surrey. Hi, Anne. Hi, I'm 100% wanting this referendum. I think it's ridiculous that they don't pull it because there was a number of people, unfortunately, that did vote for the idiot, but it was to keep the uh, SkyTrain. And that was, the, his, he pushed the SkyTrain really. Well, I, I've heard this, I've heard this before. I don't, I don't think it's necessary to call, call people names like that, frankly, but, um, you know, a lot of people make this argument, Bill, that, well, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, Mayor McCallum campaigned on a promise to do this to get rid of the RCMP, but and he won, like he won big. He got a majority on council too, and the majority he still has. So right. he has the mandate to do it. Well, he doesn't have a mandate to do it, in my opinion, Mike. And that, the reason why is this: first of all, four of the uh, councillors who all voted for in favor at the beginning have switched their uh, position on this and are calling for a referendum. I think that when you make a major change like this, there was supposed to be a feasibility study, a financial study. People were supposed to have it laid out how expensive this would be, what the cost would be. 
All of those things have not happened. It's just piling on costs and costs. So that's why the Surrey Police Vote campaign uh, got 42,942 signatures calling for a referendum. And, you know, you mentioned we couldn't have one. Well, the B.C. government under the Referendum Act can order a referendum at any point in time, uh, today, tomorrow, a month from now. So we'll see what happens with that. But regardless of that, I think people, you know, you can't have five out of nine councillors making a multi-billion dollar decision for for decades into the future and say Why to not? voters, you don't They've have got a majority. A well, five out of nine is a majority. Well, then we'll find out what happens in the election. But in my opinion, that this is the kind of big issue that requires a referendum and the consent and the support or, or the rejection by Surrey voters, just like we have on other major issues, HST, okay. uh, proportional representation. Why are people afraid of the voters? If this is such a great idea, Surrey will vote for it, but it won't. Okay. So, uh, Pete calling from Surrey. Hi, Pete. Hi. Hey, Mike. Um, just three quick things, and then you can comment on them. Um, why aren't we hiring a lot of the existing RCMP that are in Surrey, and that will alleviate uh, taking away from somebody else, the other departments? Um, a lot of the equipment is owned by Surrey that that uh, the RCMP use, so a lot of that money that they say they have to use is they already have that. Equipment. Okay, let me ask. Let me ask Bill that. I mean, they are hiring RCMP officers, though, right? That are transferring yeah. over. Yeah, but very. Uh, I mean, very few are transferring over. That's that's part of the problem that Chief Lipinski has is because uh, <laughs> Surrey RCMP officers. I mean, if you think of the RCMP, if you want to uh, be mo- upwardly mobile in your career and you're only in the Surrey Municipal Force or the Delta or whatever, there's very limited opportunity. So most of the RCMP officers are saying thanks, but no thanks. We'd rather stay in the RCMP, our chosen profession, and we're not joining the SPS. Okay, uh, that's it, that's it, Bill. Thank you. Uh, out of time. I want to thank you for coming on. It's Bill Tillman. He's part of the campaign to keep the RCMP in Surrey. We had more calls that we couldn't get to. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the uh, Christmas tree market out there right now. Tis the season to get out there and get a real Christmas tree. If that's what you get, a lot of people prefer the artificial tree. We got the real tree at our home last weekend. And I'll tell you, I was a little surprised by uh, the prices when I went to my local tree lot. It seemed pretty pricey. Maybe I should have shopped around a bit more to get a better deal. Uh, but we talked about this on the show yesterday. Let's discuss the Christmas tree market now uh, with my guest, Paul Huskin. He's with the Southwest BC Christmas Tree Association. He's the president there. He's the owner of Woodsong Christmas Trees near Cultus Lake. Hi, Paul. Good morning, Mike. Hey, thanks a lot for coming on. Cultus Lake, you, you guys are near Chilliwack, right? Yeah, south of Chilliwack, south uh, of Cultus. How's it been for the flooding out there for you? Uh, well, it's been good here. We're at 850 feet elevation, okay. so we're not inundated, but we sh- sure saw a lot of water go by our door in the I, creek below. I, I bet you did. I'm glad you stayed dry. Um, what is the Christmas tree market like out there this year, Paul? Is there a shortage out there? Well, Mike, I'd have to say there is there is a shortage of Christmas trees this year. However, I'd say there's uh, been a chronic shortage of Christmas trees in B.C. for a number of years. Of uh, the 400,000 trees sold each year, only 100,000 are currently being grown here. The ballots come from either the U.S. in declining numbers or eastern Canada, mainly from Quebec. Yeah, why is that? Why do we have to import these trees? I mean, you'd think like this would be, this would be the best province in the country to grow a Christmas tree. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, the, the price of land in the lower, you know, in the Fraser Valley is pretty prohibitive, so I'm yeah. sure that is a factor. Um, but this year I'd say also that the shortage of trees has been intensified. I'd say three main factors, and I can tell you if you like. Yeah, sure, please go ahead. <clears throat> well, 
in part, the damage that occurred with this summer's heat dome uh, was a factor, causing some trees to be unmarketable this year. I'd say, thankfully, most of the damage was in younger stock, which can be replaced. For example, on my farm here at Cultus, I lost about 3,000 one- and two-year-old seedlings. But I also have a seedling bed where I grow additional stock, so those brown baby trees have already been replaced by green, healthy ones, because I just didn't want the public looking at that when they came in. Um, Second factor in the shortage this year has been the recent rainfall, as you can imagine. Uh, Growers are having challenges accessing trees in fields that are inundated with water. I'm still trying to get into a a field that I lease in Langley, and I'm going to give it one more try tomorrow. And then, of course, there's been the issue of getting trees from A to B. Um, With the closure of Highway 1 in particular, uh, you know, that's been a headache for many tree farmers, especially in the Fraser Valley. Okay, so with all those problems out there, uh, demand is always high for trees. So if you've got a short supply, high demand, does that mean the prices go up? Um, You know, the prices haven't gone up that much this year. Okay. my prices on my farm have only got up modestly, so I don't see any evidence of price gouging out there. Okay, well, speaking of the price gouging, I know you contacted me yesterday, Paul, during my interview with Mike Gogo, who is the owner of Gogo's Christmas Tree Farm on Vancouver Island, and here's what he had to say about the price gouging here, and have a listen. People come to the gate, they get greeted, they get some nice high-end Swiss chocolate, they get a nice sharp saw, they can cut any tree of any species of any height for $35. And up until last year, it was $30. And we'd like it so that everybody can come out and get a tree. We don't want it so that families, a lot of them have had a really bad year with the COVID and the layoffs and all that kind of stuff. We don't want anybody saying we can't afford it this year. We don't want any little sad faces. And in fact, if they're they're single parents, and they've had a really bad year, a single parent, we will give them a free tree, and we've done that for many, many years. Okay, so he says that he charges 35 bucks for a freshly cut new tree on his farm, which sounds like a, a heck of a deal, uh, and I'll get your thoughts on that in a sec, Paul, but here, here's what he said about the, the price gouging, because I asked him about prices going up. I was on a Christmas tree lot uh, the other day that had $200 Christmas trees, and here's what he told me about that. It pains me that people are gouging people, and they are, because believe me, I know the growers, I know guys that produce down there in Oregon, 500,000 trees a year, and I'm talking to them all the time, and I know their prices have not gone up more than 10%. So if these people in the lower mainland are charging those kind of prices, they're just gouging you something fierce. Okay, so he thinks there's price gouging going on, but you don't think so, Paul? Well, I'd say that there was some... uh significant misinformation broadcast on the airwaves on CKNW yesterday. It cost between $25 and $30 a tree over the course of seven years to culture a decent, healthy tree. So when you factor in things like the cost of machinery, soil preparation, seedling purchases, planting labor, replanting due to mortalities, vegetation control, fertilizer, on and on, you know, basil pruning, shearing of the trees, transportation and marketing, um, the input costs are get to be between twenty five and thirty dollars a tree. So I would say that if a grower is selling trees for thirty five dollars, they are either barely breaking even or they are not putting in the appropriate time and resources 
and are likely selling an inferior product. It's one or the other. Okay, well, that's very interesting. What what should be, you know, a fair price for a decent average tree? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, given what the public needs to know is it takes anywhere between five and nine or ten years to grow a tree. Yeah. So a Douglas fir, you know, you can if everything's optimal, you can get a Douglas fir to market in five years. Whereas a noble fir, you know, you're looking at, or a northern fir, you're looking at eight or nine years. So in those cases, I would say paying between um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to $18 a foot is not unreasonable. Okay, so I went to uh, I went back to the tree lot that I, that I visited the other day just to make sure I wasn't imagining these prices, and I took a look at some of the trees on sale at this particular place that I saw, and yeah, I mean there were some trees that were on sale for two hundred dollars. Now I did look closely at that species of tree, Paul, and mm-hmm. your thoughts. That was for a Nordman fir tree, mm-hmm. like an uh, like an eight footer. A Nordman fir, like is that? I mean, is don't get me wrong. It was a beautiful looking tree, but man, two hundred bucks, really? Like, you think that's a reasonable price? Well, it, it is on the higher end, but I would also. I've got about seven hundred Nordman fir in my field here, and they are a beautiful tree, but they take nine years to get there. Okay. And I don't know of too many people who would put a nine-year investment into a tree to sell it for thirty-five dollars. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, I I understand, like, if you're going to get a premium tree, you should expect a premium price, but I, I just wondered about that particular particular price tag. So let me go back to what Mike Gogo said there when he said if you go to his farm, he'll sell you a tree for 35 bucks. Do you think that that's just unreasonable? That, that doesn't make any economic sense to you? I would say, you know, I mean, people, tree farmers make deals with people all the time. I mean, I've sold people trees, you know, and trade for an apple pie because I like apple <laughs> pie and they didn't have much money, but they love to bake. So, you know, but to charge $35 for every customer, I just don't see how a person can make uh, yeah. a living doing that. Yeah. Speaking of Paul Huskin, president, Southwest BC Christmas Tree Association. Yeah, there is a bit of a shortage out there right now. Would What would your advice be, Paul, if people are looking to get a nice, a real Christmas tree this year? Would you say shop early? Yeah, I would say shop early. Um, but also you could shop later, too, because with the heat dome, some of the later species that sell, like Douglas fir or Grand fir, Douglas fir were hardly impacted by the heat dome, so they should be in good supply this year. But also, I'd, I'd encourage the public to go to, to the Drive BC website, and if conditions are favorable, then head out to one of your local tree farms and cut a tree with friends and family and support your local Christmas tree farmer, because we're not all driving Porsches. Yeah, but for sure, and and it's a it's a nice family outing to to do something like that for sure. Last question for you, Paul. What would be your number one tip for keeping your tree in in good condition when you get it back? Like you've got to you've got to cut the bottom of that stem off, right, and get it into water right away. Like yeah, no, mess, kinda, no messing around. Yeah, you, you you treat the the tree much like you would you know when you purchase cut flowers. Yeah. So when you get that tree home, you just before you put it in water. First of all, I you know. Introduce it to the house gradually, like, you know, in the carport or something like that, or a garage. And then secondly, just before you put it in water, cut an inch off uh, the bottom of the the tree because the capillary action draws water up. And then don't let it get dry. And don't don't put it next to the fireplace or the heat duct. Good stuff. Thank you, Paul, for coming on today.
Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, here we go now with gas prices in Metro Vancouver, and we know that they are sky high. We've got some of the most expensive gas prices in North America. Therefore, is it worth it to make a run for the border, drive across that border to Washington State for a tank full of of cheap gas now many people may be doing that again right now now that the pcr covid test requirement has been dropped by the federal government for short trips across the border so if you're doing a day trip across the border no no negative covid test required coming back so why not why not head across the border and gas up your vehicle with some cheap gas now check this out this went kind of viral on twitter the other day Michael Geller, who's been a a frequent guest here on the show, he wrote, I don't think B.C. residents should cross the border just to buy gasoline in the United States. Why not? Because the taxes they avoid help to pay for badly needed road repairs here in British Columbia, health care, and other government services. So is it unpatriotic to cross the border for that cheap gas knowing that if you bought your gas here part of that money would be going to help for the badly needed services we need here in british columbia let's discuss now with my guest mark lee senior economist canadian center for policy alternatives i'm pleased to welcome him back to the show hi mark hey good morning mike okay mark what do you think of this argument that going across the border to get that cheap gas is I don't know. I mean, maybe it's it's not a it's not a good thing to do when you're with the, those tax that tax revenue so badly needed here on this side of the border. What do you think? Well, I think on an individual basis, you can see the temptation. Um, you know, gas prices are cheaper uh, across the border, and you know, if you were going to Seattle for the weekend and you know visiting friends or going to a show and coming back, you know, and people would likely fill up their their tank on the way back. Um, but just crossing the border alone just to fill up, I don't think it actually makes a whole lot of sense. Um, it's certainly cheaper in, in the States. Um, but really, when you look at it on a full tank of gas, like a 40-liter tank, uh, when you look at the price differential, you're looking at saving between 5 and $8, depending on, on where you live. And some of that's going to be used to get there and back. And you're still going to spend a bunch of time waiting and and uh in in transit so i don't know that it's actually that great a deal and particularly right now uh, i'm not sure about michael geller's point around supporting healthcare and other stuff like that generally speaking we spend more to support driving through the public sector uh, than we get back uh, in taxes so uh, overall it's a pretty good deal if you're a driver uh, if you fill up your tank you're looking at paying about twenty dollars in gases and then you get to drive for free on all the roads and, and bridges in the region and the, and the entire province that's uh, a much better deal in fact than taking transit so a typical you know even a fairly high intensity drivers driving twenty thousand kilometers a year pay about a thousand dollars uh, in taxes, which is a lot, but if you compare that to fifteen hundred dollars for a two-zone transit pass, still looks pretty good. Okay, well, when you take a look at all that tax revenue that's uh, generated at the gas pump, 
I mean, it's a lot. Even if you just look at it at the federal level, where the government of Canada collects about $5 billion a year in excise taxes on gasoline, diesel, and that includes aviation fuel as well. Now, that is a lot of money uh, that they then turn around and spend on government services. It's a huge revenue source for the provincial government as well, and local government too, right, for things like transit services. So, I mean, when people make that run across the border, do you think that that's, that calculation is in their mind, or are people just going like, hey, I'm going to go where the cheapest prices are, period. That's what's most important to me. I think most people are not thinking about all of the complexity of different levels of government and the taxes they pay. And then, you know, a bunch of that money from the federal tax flows back to municipalities. You know, a bunch of the money paid uh, here in, in the uh, in Metro Vancouver uh, supports the transit system and, uh, you know, maintaining roads and bridges and, and all that kind of stuff. I think mostly people are just looking at the, at the price. Um, but, you know, as noted, even though there is a, a gap there, I mean, when you actually look at how much you can fill up, you know, maximum of filling up a tank doesn't end up being that much. You know, once you convert from gallons to liters and U.S. dollars back to Canadian dollars, um, it's still a fairly small amount of money. I'm not going to begrudge anyone for wanting to save, you know, five or eight dollars on a on a tank of gas. But at this particular moment uh, in time, especially uh, given the massive damage we had uh, to our infrastructure and maybe more to come, um, I urge people to just stay in Canada and pay your taxes. Okay. When you say that, like, what do you think goes through the minds of most people when when they hear something like that? Because I'm already getting text messages and emails from people saying, like, look, you know, the the calculation that I go through in my mind is the same way that business owners do it or anyone does it. I go with the lowest bidder. I will go with the cheapest prices. And if you want more revenue, maybe you should lower the tax rate and keep people here at home instead of going across the border to buy gasoline. And people also do combo trips, right? I mean, they're not just buying gas in Washington State, but they're going to the grocery store and they're buying cheap dairy products. They're buying cheap cheese and, and milk and, and other products that are less expensive there too. So I don't think we're going to stop people from doing that. But when you look at the price of the tax rates on, on gasoline, do you think that those gas tax rates are fair? Like a lot of people just feel like they're getting burned at the pump. Uh, well, look, we have a big province. We have a lot of roads uh, and infrastructure that we have to pay for. We have to pay for other public services associated with that, like policing. Um, there are also costs that get imposed by people driving and burning gasoline, uh, air pollution, uh, you know, carbon dioxide emissions, which fuel climate change. So when you add up all of those, driving is actually fairly subsidized relative to the taxes that get paid. Uh, in BC. But I know people are looking at, uh, you know, a bottom line, uh, you know, what it means for the for their pocketbooks. Uh, yeah. And they, they look at those those taxes and they think, oh, it's a lot cheaper in the States. But in the same way that income taxes are, are more expensive in Canada, you have to look at the full picture. What do you get for those higher taxes? I'd say you get better health care and a much better quality of life. And similarly with the transportation, it makes sense that we have uh, higher taxes on, on, on gasoline. And eventually, we're trying to switch over to um, non-gasoline-powered vehicles, uh, electric yeah. vehicles or biofuels or that sort of thing. So that's the, the challenge we have to make. And, and the shutdown of the Transound Pipeline highlights to us how, how vulnerable we are to those kind of supply disruptions.
Okay, speaking to economist Mark Lee about the price of gas here in Metro Vancouver, does it make sense to go across the border and gas up with that cheap gasoline in Washington State? Uh, when you make the argument, Mark, that people might be better off going switching to public transit, I, I understand that argument, but for many people, it's simply not an option, right? Like they have to drive. They don't have a realistic transit option to turn to. They've got to get behind the wheel of their vehicle. And for a lot of people too, an electric vehicle doesn't really work for them either. So for a lot of people who feel stuck, right, they feel like they're getting punished by carbon taxes and all the other taxes that get piled onto a tank of gasoline saying like, okay, I understand you're trying to punish me to get me to switch to stop driving a gas guzzling vehicle and maybe take the bus instead, but I simply can't because there's not there's not a realistic transit option for me. How do you answer that argument that stop trying to make me switch to transit when there really isn't a viable transit service that I can access, depending on where you live? Yeah, I think mean, part of it is uh, around transit, and, you know, we're backlog. It takes, you know, a decade to build a transit line uh, in, in Metro Vancouver. So we really need to get ahead of the curve and really build out our transit infrastructure. Um, you know, overall, what we want as a society are uh, communities and neighborhoods where people don't have to drive as much or they don't have to take a transit trip that is the same uh, long distance. Um, part of this is because of, of really high housing costs. So people get pushed further away from where they work uh, in order to find uh, cheap housing, and then they have to pay for it on the other side in terms of like higher uh, transportation costs. So ultimately, uh, having a, a, a city where people can live closer to where they work and play and have amenities, and a lot of this comes to these big, more controversial uh, conversations around uh, adding more density into uh, you know, single-family housing areas. So that's a whole other topic for conversation. But that's the type of, of system uh, we need. It's not just about switching from gas-powered vehicles to electric vehicles, um, and it's not just about switching from uh, personal cars to, to transit. It's about how we design our cities and how we make that more efficient for everyone. All right, Mark, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts on it. I appreciate it. All right, take care, Mike. Okay, here we go now with the great monarchy debate in Canada. This one is fired up in our country again here. Brand new opinion poll out from Angus Reid. Now, this is fascinating. It says more than 50% of Canadians, so a majority of Canadians now, according to this poll, think that Canada should not remain in the monarchy forever should not be indefinite now a lot of people support queen elizabeth but when her reign comes to an end maybe charles becomes king most likely well then maybe canadians start to sour a little bit on the monarchy a lot of people still love the queen but when she's gone do we continue with the monarchy now check this out barbados isn't this fascinating now they have cut the cord with the monarchy. They have now become a republic. Have a listen to this. This is Sandra Mason, now the new president of Barbados. Possessing a clear sense of who we are and what we are capable of achieving, in the year 2021, we now turn our vessel's bow towards the new republic. We do this 
so that we may seize the full substance of our sovereignty. Okay, wow, okay, what a moment for Barbados there, no longer part of the Commonwealth, no longer with the monarchy. They are now the Republic of Barbados. Should Canada do the same thing? Let's discuss now what an awesome panel we've got for you. Bruce Halser on the line. Bruce is a spokesperson for the Monarchist League of Canada. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Bruce. How are you doing, Mike? I'm doing good, Bruce. Thanks for doing this. Also on the line is Tom Freda. Tom is Director of Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Hi, Tom. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, gentlemen, to both of you. Uh, Tom, let me go to you first. Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Uh, obviously, you guys believe that Canada should become a republic just like Barbados did. What do you think about the uh, what Barbados has done uh, with uh, getting rid of the monarchy? Do you think we should do the same thing? Well, first of all, congratulations to Barbados. They've done something that Canada should have done a long time ago. And obviously, yes, I think Canada should go ahead with this. And may I point out that uh, functionally, uh, you mentioned that the new president of Barbados is uh, is now in office uh, and she was elected and previously she was the governor general and right, so right. for a lot of people who think that this is something that uh, is going to make us more like the united states what we're seeing here and what's happened throughout the commonwealth uh, for decades is that the parliamentary republic model which is essentially what we have right now our governor general is essentially our head of state right. except that there's a link to the monarchy all we advocate is that connection to the monarchy be cut, just like Barbados has done. Right, yeah, because the, the president of Barbados, Sandra Mason, as you mentioned, formerly the governor general there, so she is now the new head of state in Barbados, right? But just no, but with no monarchy now. Right? That's right. And, yeah. and uh, essentially what we are already is a republic in function. Constitutional monarchy has often been called a crowned republic and... Uh, Several uh, constitutional scholars have written that Canada is already a monarchy, uh, sorry, a, uh, a, 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 a republic in all but name. So the uh, fact that uh, we still have this connection to the monarchy is really an anachronism. It should be dealt with. It should have been dealt with a long time ago. And in function, it's not going to change anything in Canada, but it'll make Canadians a lot more proud of the fact that we're independent. We're finally independent because as long okay. as we can't choose our own head of state independently, we aren't. Okay, Bruce Halser, what do you think? Well, I'm a Canadian and I'm proud, and and we are independent. And as Tom says, uh, I'm you know, a Canadian a too, and I'm proud. We're too. a functioning democracy, and I, I mean, I think Tom has to make the case to Canadians what's going to change about Canada to to make this massive change to our constitutional structure. We have always been a monarchy. Our monarchy has evolved over over hundreds of years to, to one that really has a pretty light touch, doesn't uh, affect our day-to-day our -day lives, but it is something that, that brings people together. You know, Mike, you've covered royal uh, tours uh, here. Uh, it brings people together from across partisan divides, across regional divides. It, it allows us to, to have celebrations together and, and recognition of achievements in a way that's not tied to... Uh, to politicians, political parties, even regions in Canada. And, and you know, the poll you mentioned, well, you know, if you want to ask somebody, should we always be this forever, you might get 50% uh, plus one on a lot of different questions, but that's not really the question. And and what Tom's suggesting wasn't part of that poll either. Uh, okay, Tom, Tom, what do you, yeah. Tom, what do you say to I that? I think Tom's got to make a case. 
Go ahead, Tom. Uh, well, first of all, the case has been made many, many times. Uh, as your guest knows, most members of the Commonwealth are already republics. They've already done this. There's a dwindling number of, of, uh, of Commonwealth realms that are left, and uh, I'm pretty sure that there will be other countries following very soon, uh, not just in the Caribbean, but elsewhere. Uh, and the case doesn't really need to be made because the, the road that we're on towards this, uh, this goal is, is one that's, that Canada has been on for decades. We've been, uh, for uh, f- at least since the Statute of Westminster and uh, our Citizenship Act and our patriation of the Constitution, uh, even our flag debate, those were all moments, those were all Republican moments that distanced, uh, distanced us from, from Britain. What, what, do you so, say to, what do you say to Bruce's argument, Tom, that the monarchy is a, a unifying force in, in Canada that brings Canadians together? What do you say to that? Well, I don't think... <laughs> I, uh, recent polls show that only about a quarter of Canadians agree with him. And that's not a very strong statement. That that's not a very strong endorsement of the institution. Uh, you know, let's just take the the debate beyond monarchy and go to the issue of Canada's independence. Every post-colonial country, at some point or other, goes on its own. Uh, we've got legislative independence. We have independence in every other aspect, but we don't have our own head of state. We don't have our own distinct head of state. We still have a connection, a colonial connection, to the British Empire, which even Brits don't even recognize as existing anymore. So this is just a colonial holdover. It's a residual thing that we've never dealt with. It's time we should. And uh, as far as the function goes, yes, it's not going to change much, but... What it will do? Okay, Bruce. Let me, analogy, let, let me go to Bruce. Just, just let me finish here. I draw the analogy with the Canadian yeah. flag debate. A lot yeah. of people thought that wasn't necessary; it wasn't going to change anything. But look at it now. It's a strong symbol of Canada, and everyone agrees that it should never have been. Uh, uh, it's, it's not something that we should go back to. Uh, okay, Bruce. Let me let me get, let me get Bruce. Let me get, let me give Bruce a chance here. Go ahead, Bruce. Uh, look, I take umbrage with the idea with the assertion that Canada isn't independent and has some vestige of colonialism. Uh, we are a strong, independent country. Um, as Tom agrees, nothing really is going to change except some, some symbolism that he doesn't like, but I think most Canadians are quite fine with. Um, well, as for whether like we should follow the lead of a, of a Caribbean island uh, with a population about the size of Burnaby, um, you know, I leave that to, to Canadians. I think Canadians can make their own decision based on Canada's history, and, and I think most Canadians are quite proud of the the ties that we have to our history, to to the other Commonwealth realms, to the other countries of the Commonwealth. And, and you know, every country in the Commonwealth that has had a referendum on abolishing the monarchy has voted to keep the monarchy. Uh, Australia did, uh, and that's a very similar country to Canada, um, others have. The only thing, the thing that happened in Barbados is uh, they, there were people were denied the chance to vote in a referendum. So I'm not sure how much you can take for that from that. But you know okay. what? Barbados is its own place. It can make its own decisions. That shouldn't affect how Canadians feel. And I think Canadians vote with their feet every time there's a royal tour. 
All right, the phone lines are open on this one. Should Canada keep the monarchy or should we go it alone, cut the cord and become a republic? That's what Barbados just did. No more say goodbye to the Queen. It is now the Republic of Barbados. Should Canada do the same thing? Bruce Hauser is my guest, Monarchist League of Canada. Also, Tom Freda, Director of Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Phone me on this one now and tell me what you think. 604 604- 280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Marianne in Victoria. Hi. Um, I'm very fond of the Queen and uh, the monarchy as it stands right now. Charles, not so much. I could probably vote to leave um, if Charles is in charge. But I have a question. So sure. if we did if we did dispose of the monarchy and became a republic, what kind of republic would we be? Could we still be a parliamentary-style government, or do we have to become like those crazy Americans? Okay, that's a good question. Tom Fredo, what do you, what's the answer to that? Yeah, it's a common question, um, but all one has to do is look at what, how Barbados has done this. They made their governor general, which in the past has been their de facto head of state, as with Canada, right. and they simply disposed of the office, created a new office, and elected her to be the new parliamentary president. So that's a parliamentary republic. The function of parliament still works. The traditions, the parliamentary traditions that are monarchical, uh, that we have, the Westminster-style system, none of that changes. So, uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll just repeat, you know, a, a lot of people say, well, if not much changes, why go through the trouble? It's yeah. a seminal moment in Canada's history uh, as, uh, uh, you know, on the road to full independence. And now your guest says, you know, we're, we're independent for, for all intents and purposes. I agree, we are. But I'm going to ask him, can we independently choose our own head of state? Bruce. Well, let me ask, answer Marianne first, because, all right, all right. Uh, you know, Tom has an, his view of what might happen if we became a republic. But the, the honest truth is we don't know. It's an, it would be an enormous constitutional undertaking to uh, to change our our constitutional status and to become a republic, it would need the rec- support of all the legislatures in the country, um, a supermajority in parliament, and if we remember past constitutional processes in this country, most Canadians got pretty sick and tired of them, and you know that politicians all over the place are going to insert their own view of what they think should happen, and this is indeed what has happened in other countries that had referendums on the Commonwealth, and people just didn't like it. We don't know. And Tom can't tell you with any certainty what kind of Republic Canada would be if we went down this path. What? And I say Canadians are very happy with their system of government now. It works. It functions. It's not a government independent. And, uh, and I don't see that there's been a case made to change something that Canadians are generally happy with. Tom? Well, it's, it's got nothing to do with our government. It has to do with our state. Yeah, I mean, so your question is, so just to go back to your original question to Bruce, like, can we can we choose our own head of state? And Bruce Halser, I am the answer to that is the governor general is appointed by the the queen, correct? She's appointed by the queen on the uh, with yeah. the advice and consent of the privy council. And of course, the answer is we're a sovereign country; we can do whatever we want. The de- the debate here is whether whether we should make this change and whether there's any benefit at all to making it. And I'm not convinced. And I don't okay. think Canadians are. Let's go to another call on the open line here, Terry in New West. Hi, Terry. Yeah, first off, Merry Christmas to everybody there. Um, to me, uh, Queen Elizabeth will always be the monarchy. Uh, she's been there for so long, she seems like a really wonderful person. 
uh, Prince Charles just makes me uh, creep out. <laughs> uh, I don't like him for some reason. Uh, maybe uh, her grandchildren can take over. But I still think that maybe we should get rid of the monarchy. Prince Charles becomes the head of state uh, of Canada. Forget that. Um, as far as government, I'd like to see us actually uh, adopt two terms like the Americans have four years each for the prime minister, and that's it. After two elections, they can't run again. And I'd like to see impeachment put into our political system as well. Okay, well, Tom Fredo, what do you think? We, you know, we're hearing a lot of people say, well, I, I like Queen Elizabeth, maybe Prince Charles not so much. I mean, when, when the Queen is gone and, and, and Charles is going to be crowned king, do you think the support for the monarchy will weaken? Oh, I believe it will, but uh, we don't make a big issue of that. Uh, we're, we're, we have a positive message about this being progressive, that it's, uh, it's, it's the advancement of Canada as an independent country. Uh, so as far as the personalities go, you know, it, it doesn't matter to us whether the person, the next person in line is popular or unpopular. If, if we made an issue of that, then we'd have to admit then that if Prince Charles was popular, then it would be okay for him to be president, um, uh, uh, king of Canada. So, no. you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't enter into our argument, but we recognize that it is a big factor among Canadians. Okay, and Bruce Halser, when you take a look at some of these opinion polls and Charles, the potential for Charles to become the sovereign does seem to be a factor here in, in the thinking of some Canadians. Does that concern you as a guy who supports the monarchy that maybe Charles is less popular than the Queen and support for the monarchy could weaken as a result? Well, I think this is a point on which uh, Tom and I are going to agree. Um, it's really about the institution and not about who's there. I mean, there's lots of politicians in Canada that are super popular one year and have bottom out okay. on the opinion polls the next year, and that's really not the basis for electing our, our institution. Okay, gentlemen, I have, to, I have to jump in there. The time has flown by. I want to thank both of you for being here. It was a really good discussion. Bruce Halzer, Monarchist League of Canada. Tom Freda, Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Thank you, both, to, both of you gentlemen, for doing this.